Raul Castro expected to step down as the head of Cuba's Communist Party. For the first time in more than 60 years, Cuba is set to be governed without a Castro at the helm. This seventh Congress will be the last one held by the historical generation, passing on to new roots under the banner of revolution and socialism. Raul Castro, the brother of the late Fidel, is expected to step down from his position as first secretary of the Communist Party in Cuba, the organization that has ruled the island since the 1960s. 89-year-old Castro gives up the seat 13 years after he inherited it from his brother in Cuba's one-party system. The party is holding its eighth Congress in the capital, Havana, and it's slated to elect a new generation of leaders. But the change comes in the middle of a devastating economic crisis and growing unprecedented anti-government protests. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The Communist Party in Cuba today is led by a generation that was part of the Cuban Revolution. 89-year-old former President Raul Castro holds the most senior position in the one-party nation. And he's expected to cede power to Cuba's current president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who at 60 will become the new head of the party. So to get a sense of how significant that move might be, we called someone who's covered the country for years. I'm Lucia Newman. I'm the Latin American editor slash senior correspondent for Al Jazeera English. Lucia, you are in Santiago, Chile, but you lived in Cuba for nine years. Remind our listeners what your connection to Cuba is. I began covering Cuba, seems like a million years ago. The first time I went was in the early 1980s. But I began to actually live in Cuba full-time right at the beginning of 1997. I moved there with my family, and uh, we set up shop, and I stayed there for almost a decade. I had a very close relationship to Cuba and Cubans. And as the first correspondent of a U.S.-based news organization in almost 40 years or 35 years, I was sort of like the man who had just landed from on the moon. But uh, at the same time, I had quite a lot of access to President Castro, and I got to also meet and talk to Raul Castro as well. It's a small island, so you really do get your teeth stuck into the place fairly quickly when you live there. So that makes you the perfect person to talk to. This weekend, Cuba's Communist Party, which is in charge of everything in the country, holds its eighth Congress. What type of decisions are typically made at this event, and why is this one particularly important? I think that this particular uh, party congress is more symbolically important than in, in terms of what's going to happen than in substance, because what it's going to signal is the end of the Castro brothers, the Castro era, if you like, at the helm of the Cuban Communist Party, which is what runs the show in Cuba. The Castro brothers, Fidel and Raul, led the Communist Party in Cuba since 1965, as first and second secretaries, respectively. Fidel, who also held the title of president, stepped down from that role in 2008. 
but he kept his position as head of the party until 2011. He died five years later. Raul assumed the presidency and took full control of the political organization as first secretary. And just like his brother, he remained in that role even after his presidential term ended in 2018. Now he's going to have to pass on the baton to the man that he left as the president of the country, which is Miguel Díaz-Canel, who will then have both positions. And this is important. Remember, it's been years since there was always a Castro in charge of the country. What will they discuss beyond that? Well, they have to name the number two. For decades and decades, it was Fidel Castro, and it was number one, and Raul Castro was number two. There was never any question. So what will happen now if Raul Castro is out of the picture is the big question. What else will they discuss that's really significant? No one really knows. Lucia says the younger generation of the Cuban Communist Party is thirsty for change. There is a lot of pressure for there to be more liberalization. The younger members of the Communist Party want there to be less rigidity, less dogma, more flexibility, more ability for party members to debate, to show criticism, and not to feel that they will be sanctioned somehow for that. And that has been the case for more than half a century. People do not feel free to really say what they want or what they feel, what they believe. And so that's what has made the system so rigid all this time. As you mentioned, this will be the first time in over five decades that there won't be a Castro in charge. So what happens for Raul next? Is he retiring to leave room for the next generation? Will he still be behind the scenes calling shots? Uh Aha, that's the big, uh, that's the $50 million question. He says, or he has said in the past, that he all he wanted was to retire now and to go and become a farmer again. He has a house in, in Santiago de Cuba, and that's where he had mentioned that he wanted to live in peace, tranquilly, without the pressures of politics. But nobody believes that's really going to happen. What are you hearing from people who are there about this change, about what might happen when Raul Castro steps down. You might be surprised, but ordinary Cubans aren't paying as much attention to this as I think we are abroad. And right now, Cubans are much more concerned about where they're going to get their next meal. There's talk about rumblings from a younger generation of more publicized dissent. There's a song, it's a protest anthem that was written by Cubans, some in exile in Miami, Florida, and others in Cuba, and it's now playing around the island. It is called Homeland and Life, that's what it's translated to. Why did the song go so viral? Yes, the song has gone absolutely viral inside Cuba, not just abroad, and I don't think there's anyone who hasn't heard it. It's called Patria y Vida, which means homeland and life. And that is the counterpart of the revolutionary slogan that you hear at the end of every speech, every meeting, It's which is homeland or death. That was coined by Fidel Castro. And we're talking now about almost six decades after the revolution, people are still supposed to say homeland or death. And so this was their way of saying, no, we're sick and tired of that. We want homeland and life, a better life, a better system. And is an extremely bold protest song.
and with extremely famous and popular salsa singers, reggaeton singers, musicians that everybody knows. And even though they live abroad, they were actually going back and forth to Cuba. I think after this, they will not be returning for quite some time. But it caused a major impact in the country and especially amongst the youth. There's been so much rumbling amongst the youth. So we reached out to a young Cuban human rights activist in Miami, Florida, Rosa Maria Paya. She's been monitoring the protests in Cuba from exile, including a recent hunger strike by dozens of members of the Patriotic Union of Cuba, an umbrella group that encompasses Cuban dissident organizations. The hunger strike was a response to what organizers say were threats by authorities. We asked her if she thinks that Cuban leaders are worried about the increase in protests on the island. Of course that the leaders of the regime are afraid. They're afraid of losing all their power and all the resources that they robbed. The Cuban people are demanding democratic change. But instead of submitting to the sovereign will of the people and opening to the structural change in the political and in the economic system that the people are demanding, the dictatorship has intensified the repression. Rosa Maria doesn't hold out much hope for true change, despite what comes out of the Communist Party Congress. The so-called change of leadership in the Communist Party in Cuba is a fraud. It's a theater designed mainly for external consumption. It is a way to extend their power by faking changes, but without actually trespassing that power. And, and the Cuban people, especially the Cuban people in the island, knows very well that this Congress means no real changes, no improvement for their lives. We Cubans, we expect nothing from the corrupt leadership of the totalitarian state. We know better than that. So, Lucia, back in November, there was another type of protest from artist groups after a, a rapper was sentenced to eight months in jail for confronting a police officer that he said had illegally entered his home. What can you tell me about that? Yes, that was a rapper called Denis Solis, and he was part of a movement called San Isidro. The San Isidro movement galvanized the intelligentsia, the intellectuals, artists, singers, painters of all sorts, writers. This is something that we had not seen before in Cuba. And these people went and protested en masse, hundreds of them outside of the culture ministry office. It's time for dialogue, and I think it's important that young people are heard, and we're going to work for that. And the government responded by basically declaring them all as counter-revolutionaries. And instead of people being afraid, what we started seeing is people slowly define authorities on the streets, not members anymore of the San Isidro movement, but just ordinary Cubans. I was shocked to see a video where they were about to arrest someone who was po protesting with a sign, and a group of people on the street started screaming at the police. Some women started actually pushing the policemen away, confronting them openly. This is something that you would never have seen a couple of years ago. Why do you think we're now seeing it? It's a combination of things. I think that from the point of view of the Cuban Communist Party, it's the perfect storm against them. We have an economic crisis. 
very similar, if not as bad as the time when the Soviet Union collapsed back in 1990, and they entered into what Castro called the special period. People had no food, they had no petrol. And this is what my friends tell me, that we're back in the special period again. The economy has contracted 11%. It's very difficult to get food, impossible almost to buy imported goods, but almost everything that you need is imported. The lack of tourism because of the pandemic. So the one safety net that they had was renting and, and producing services for tourists, and that is not an option. And finally, as the cherry on the cake, the reforms that former President Barack Obama had implemented to ease restrictions on the U.S. economic embargo were reinstated under Donald Trump and even made worse. So the Cubans have arrived at 2021 limping their way along. And all these different factors have made people more rebellious, particularly the youth. I saw something like this during the special period back in the 1990s. And that was somehow kept repressed or controlled by Fidel Castro. Because Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life figure. He went out onto the streets. He actually spoke to people. But now... We're seeing the end of the Castro era, the ones who actually created the revolution. Who is going to dare go out on the streets now and tell people to just go back home and be patient? So you mentioned economic hardships. The Cuban government decided to devalue its currency for the first time since 1959. So since January, 24 Cuban pesos equal to one U.S. dollar. But the island also has a convertible Cuban peso, which is of equal value as the dollar. Can you explain how that system works and what this change means? This is very complicated. <laughs> What's just, to say the least, yes. I was living in Cuba when they introduced the kook, or the Cuban convertible currency, as they called it. It was, at its inception, one-to-one. It was tied to the U.S. dollar. Tied in the sense it was 24 Cuban pesos, the national currency, to one U.S. dollar. But slowly and slowly, they let that slide. And the CUC or Cook was worth much more than what Cubans really paid for. It was like, like you had a monopoly money in your hand. It really became worthless after a while. For many on the island, the Cuban convertible currency, or CUC, is worth much more than the Cuban peso. But not everyone can get their hands on the CUC. It's mostly used in businesses that involve foreign money, like tourism or buying goods imported from abroad. And since most Cubans who work outside of the tourism sector are paid with Cuban pesos instead, the dual system has created a lot of disparities. You could buy things with a CUC, but you were paying with something that was not worth what the product you were buying was worth. And everybody knew that having this dual currency system was a time bomb in the economy that as soon as they let it go, they were going to release massive inflation. But there was nothing more they could do about it, particularly right now when they have no money. So the government decided to unify the currency by ending its dual system. That meant the devaluation of the Cuban peso against the U.S. dollar for the first time since the 1959 revolution. And it means that the purchasing power on the island has dropped. The CUC is set to disappear from use by June of this year. But it's still not enough because they're charging people what 
things are worth in hard currency in reality, not what they pretended that they were worth. They don't have funny money anymore. They don't have monopoly money. Now to buy imported goods, basic goods means toothpaste, soap, cooking oil, rice, just about everything you need. You need to use foreign currency even now. But Lucia says that getting foreign currency in Cuba today is complicated because of U.S. sanctions. Many Cubans who are living abroad are in the United States, and Donald Trump made it impossible to send money on Western Union or through U.S. banks to Cuba. So they are absolutely cornered right now in terms of having access to foreign currency in the country. And so let me tell you, I, I have a friend who told me that her salary was raised to 4,000 Cuban pesos, but she has to pay 5,000 Cuban pesos just to pay her light bill. Oh, wow. And so she's desperate. She had never wanted to leave the island, but now she says she does. She can't afford food. She says that it's been a year since she's been able to buy a tin of soda. That's why they can't watch the Cuban Party Congress with hope, thinking that this is going to solve their problems because they they know it's the same system that has brought this about, as well as the pandemic, which has no solution that the party can fix, the lack of tourism, which is not something the party can fix, and the U.S. economic uh, sanctions, which is not something that the party can fix. You have interviewed so many people on the island over the course of your time there. And even after you left and going back, what could you tell me about what the Cuban people want to see in their future? Above all, what Cubans want is freedom. And when I say freedom right now, they're thinking primarily of economic freedom, not of forming lots of different political parties. When Cuba introduced this new economic reform that went into effect at the beginning of this year, they promised that Cubans were going to be allowed to have much more control of businesses, that not everything would be controlled by the government as it had been. But it hasn't happened because economically they haven't had the resources to allow Cubans to import anything. There's no money. But that is what Cubans want. They want to be able to live in their country without having to be controlled. They want to be able to do what they do in China, for example and uh, Vietnam. They do not necessarily want to get rid of, in fact, they want to defend the access to education and, and health care, absolutely. But they want to be able to have also a, a much stronger voice in the political system. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez and Dina Kispe, with Priyanka Tilvey, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Nagin Odiai, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Tom Benton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back 